welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Podcast. My name is Scott Miller. I serve as your host and interviewer each week. You may know that recently I released a new book for Franklin Covey published by HarperCollins Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds, where I curated 30 of my kind of favorite interviews across the first two seasons and Wrote an easy breezy chapter around 30 different people, including people like Seth Godin and Dan Pink, Liz Wiseman, Susan Cain, Ryan Holiday, Leif Babin, Whitney Johnson, Brendan Bouchard, Nancy Duarte, Stephen M. R. Covey, and many others. And the book has done, I'd say, sufficiently well, so much that HarperCollins signed me to a second volume in the 10-volume series, Master Mentors, Volume 2, in green, with 30 new mentors and 30 new transformational insights coming out in October. Pick up a copy and pre-order a copy of Volume 2. I'll keep you posted when that will be available. Uh, Delighted today to bring to our series a 22-year colleague and personal friend of mine, Dr. Patrick Ledden. Many of you may know him as a Franklin Covey consultant. He is the author of the new Wall Street Journal best-selling book, The Five-Week Leadership Challenge, 35 Action Steps to Become the Leader You Were Meant to Be from Nashville, Tennessee. Dr. Ledden, welcome to On Leadership. Hi, Scott. So glad to be here today. So good to see you. Patrick, this uh, interview is a long time coming. You and I have been in cahoots, if you will, for 22 years, both as mentors, colleagues, friends. Uh, We've led each other through the transformations of our families and our brands and I'm delighted to have our friendship sort of crescendo today in you as a guest, worthy of, uh, of uh, this episode because of your chops. And before I get into your book, I want to talk a bit about what I know about you. And that is a lot. You are one of those unique individuals that has range. When I say that, one of my favorite books of all time is by David Epstein by the same name, Range, where he talks about the difference between specialists and generalists, and although we don't have a lot in common in terms of our education or our stature, we have a lot in common in terms of our range. What I know about you is uh, you came out of college with a criminal justice degree, and then you joined the Army and served our nation for many years, and were in fact an Army Ranger, which is a corollary to being, of course, a Navy SEAL. And then you went on to become a, a scientist of sort. You worked in the pet food industry. You pivoted and became a Franklin Covey consultant. You wrote several books. You are, in fact, PMI certified, which is one of the highest designation. You are, you're a certified project manager, which maybe to the common person doesn't sound like much, but it's a hard-earned designation where only a handful of people inside Franklin Covey worldwide have this certification. You went on to earn... Uh, PhD. You are now a professor at Vanderbilt in marketing. You've gone on to launch a boutique consulting company with your wife, which became an Inc. 5000 business. You are now a Wall Street Journal bestselling author. You host a rival podcast to this called The Leadership Lab with Dr. Ledden. And along the way, you've picked up lots of skills and you keynote speak as a side hustle. And I think I've probably missed a half dozen things that you have accomplished. I mean, you have broad range. You are a doctorate. You have a, a, a role at one of the most prestigious institutions of higher learning in the U.S. Army Ranger, Inc. 5000 Company. I'm going to guess 25 years ago when you graduated from college or perhaps more, you would not have thought that would have been your trajectory. For all those millions who are listening and watching around the world, take a few minutes and talk about is where you've landed 
where you set out to start. Well, Scott, thanks for the introduction. I really appreciate that. And, and as I listen to that, coming specifically from you, I'm really honored that you took the time to walk through that because I've seen the breadth and depth of your career unfold over the last 20 years that I've known you. So it really is an honor to be here today and a chance to talk to you. No, it didn't unfold the way I thought it would, like, like many um, experiences and careers in our lives don't unfold the way we think. And act actually, I oftentimes have undergraduate students who look at my resume and they say, oh, Professor Ledden, I'd like to have a career like yours. Can you help me write out my 30-year plan? And as you might imagine, I, I laugh at that because oftentimes we don't have a 30-year plan. Oftentimes we try to make the next right decision at the next intersection in our lives. And sometimes we get it right and sometimes we get it wrong. And I also tell them that what they see on the resume is my curated good stuff. And there's lots of stuff that happened in between the letters on that resume, the, the, in, the, in the blank space, if you will, where really a lot of the learning happens. So no, I don't, I'm not exactly where I thought I'd be at this moment, but I do think that it was a series of decisions over time that got me here. I mean, really any one of those could have been a lifelong journey. You know, professor at a Ivy League institution, uh, Inc. 5000 company, a, a career, a long career, in the army, was there a certain level of self-belief? You had a, you know, you had a work ethic, you were inspired by your parents. What do you think was the impetus behind you being able to pivot so dramatically, successfully, literally seven or eight significant pivots over the last three decades? Is there a skill that you learned or one that you could share with us that might embolden or inspire someone watching or listening today? Sure, I think it's kind of twofold, honestly, Scott. There's one part of it that might be skill-based. The fact that I've been able to see opportunities and to, to believe in myself and have confidence in myself and surround myself with good people like yourself who encourage me to, to take the risk sometimes, let go of the one vine and grab the other. But then there's also the, the negative side of that. Like anything that we have, we have our, our, our strengths or sometimes our struggles. And the negative sides kind of come back to the idea that I do like change sometimes too much. And I have to watch that because, you know, your reputation can go along with that at times. In fact, if I was listening to the radio in the car, even if a song came on that I really liked, my natural disposition is to want to change the song because there might be a better one. So for me, at least, you know, having to try to keep that in check. So making good decisions, being confident in yourself, but not too much, too many changes. And, you know, in your own career, Scott, you didn't change organizations that often but you have as many different careers as I have. You've just done them all within the same organization. Are you shaming me or are you complimenting me? I can't tell. I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Patrick, you have uh, a massive uh, social media presence. You have 100,000 followers on LinkedIn. You've written several best-selling books, including one we'll talk about. But today we're here to talk about not the red book above you or the black book below you, but that profound book, over your left shoulder, that white book. Talk about that book. That, now, that, that's the nature of today's conversation, right? I'm kidding, I'm kidding, <laughs> not hardly. That's a book, quite frankly, that Patrick is promoting me. I was privileged to co-author that book. Today, we are here talking about the book on your other shoulder, The Five-Week Leadership Challenge. It feels a little bit like there's an angel over one shoulder and a devil over the other. I just want to let you know which one's which. Well, don't disclose which is which. Today, this book was published by HarperCollins Leadership. It's a similar publisher I've worked with. It's done extremely well, hit the Wall Street Journal list when you came out, A, because of its value and a lot of hard work, I know, on your part. Talk about the inspiration that went into The Five-Week Leadership Challenge. Absolutely, Scott. Glad to do so. It's a funny one because people ask me, how long did it take you to write that book? I'm sure you've had that question as 30 well. Years, no, 30 years, 30 years. There's no easy answer to that question because it is 30 years of experiences put into five weeks. So in one regard, I could answer it and say, it took me 30 years. 
Another way I can answer that question is that it took me a few years because a lot of what was written in the book was first tested and shared on social media, received feedback, kind of kind of the old Delphi technique of improving something. And then there was kind of the concerted effort of a few months of finally putting it all together. So it was written over a longer period of time, but specifically the reason I wanted to go with a five week type of layout is I want it to be simple and easy to digest. So every day there's a reading and every reading is based on a story, often one that I personally experienced or had a chance to watch somebody else experience. And they're all designed to teach five fundamental pieces associated with being a leader. So that's why it's five weeks. Patrick, you are uh, very credible in the leadership space. Like I said, you have one of the largest leadership podcasts out there called The Leadership Lab with Dr. Ledden. Highly encourage people subscribe to that. Like I said, you've written many books. You have spoken on countless thousands of stages around the world, literally thousands over the course of your career. When it came time to write your first core broad-based leadership book, how did you pick the challenges? How did you pick how you organized them? Well, the challenges themselves were picked based upon the framework. So as you mentioned, Scott, I've been on a lot of stages over the years, anything from working with small teams to you know, large scale auditoriums or, or ballrooms. And over the process of doing that, I continued to refine a process that was not just something that I came up with my own, but really informed by watching other leaders around the world, literally. And in doing so, I became clear that there's five things that leaders often do really well. They're very clear on their perspective. They know their mindset. They're very clear on their purpose. They know why they're choosing to lead. They're clear on their priorities, what they want to accomplish. They're understanding, they have a strong understanding of their plans of how to make it happen. And then lastly, they understand how to perform under sometimes very challenging conditions. So each week covers one of those areas, perspective, purpose, priorities, plans, and performance. And as you mentioned, I was a former army guy. I like to keep it simple by having everything start with a P. <laughs> uh, Patrick, what I like most about you other than your integrity and work ethic and perseverance and service to our nation and loyalty to your family and you're funny as hell, is you're a great storyteller. I mean, you literally are. You, you are a great storyteller. A, you have a lot of stories to draw upon, right? Both in the private and public sector, not-for-profit with your family and so on. Each chapter, each challenge, if you will, has a story that is included. And you've got some great stories to tell. If I'm not mistaken, if I remember wondering about a drill instructor and like a gas mask or something, it's been a few weeks. Tell me about that story. What's the lesson, the leadership lesson to be learned? Take your time. Well, I do have a lot of stories. And I think that that's just how I teach and how I learn myself. I kind of look, look at things and say to myself, what's the lesson here? I often bring that into the classroom and I notice it resonates well with students. So especially as I'm talking predominantly to new and aspiring leaders in their 20s or 30s, which is the target of the book, and when I talk to them, I find that stories really do convey a message. And we all know that. We've used stories throughout human history. But these days, we don't stand around campfires. We stand around projector bulbs. But we're still telling stories. So I've been telling stories for a long time, not just to tell stories sake or to say, look what I've done, but really to help other people write their story. So the stories I share, even though many of them are Patrick-centric, they're not designed for you to go, look at what Patrick's done. They're designed for you to think about like, what can you do or how would you handle the situation? So the specific story you're referring to took, back, took place way back in 1987. I was actually enlisted in the army. I enlisted in the military before I went to college. I think I was and in fourth we, grade, third or fourth grade at the yeah, time. Yeah, I, I was actually you know, still in diapers. No, and, I was, uh, not you, keep going. <laughs> so <laughs> I was down at a place called Fort McClellan, Alabama. And just to give you a feel of how long ago this was, Fort McClellan doesn't exist anymore. And they closed the installation down, but it's hot, humid Alabama in the summer, 
going through training. And as you might imagine, whether you've seen them personally or been to see them in a movie, drill sergeants aren't particularly friendly. So one day we were out for a training exercise. And as you mentioned, Scott, it was a nuclear, biological, or chemical exercise, which meant gas masks. You're wearing your, your gas equipment, your equipment to kind of repel if there's a chemical agent or something like that. And the purpose of that day's training was to gain confidence in your mask, the mask you put over your face. So I remember we marched out to the field somewhere and we were standing in front of this building. It was not very big. I don't know, maybe 20 feet by 10 feet, something like that, 200 square feet, cinder block, probably about seven or eight feet tall, no windows, one door. And we're standing in front of this building and out from the building comes this person in full chemical gear. Got a, a mask over their face all the way down to the rubber boots on their feet. And along with the person emerging from the building is also this cloud of smoke. The person removes their mask and immediately we all recognize this drill sergeant. Not a particularly nice drill sergeant. Uh, he was kind of one of the tougher ones, if you will. And I remember he started off with, you know, good morning, privates. Today we're going to go in here. You're going to come in in small groups of three to five people. I'll tell you to remove your mask. When you, turn, re when you remove your mask, you'll feel the, the CS gas or the tear gas hitting your face. I need you to tell me your name, your rank, and your social security number. Any questions? And of course, there were typically no questions. We knew how that went. He asked questions and we knew not to respond. But that day, something different happened. Somebody behind me, some poor soul or brave soul, however you look at it, must have raised his hand because the drill sergeant said, yes, private, what's your question? And he said, meek voice from behind me said, why are we doing this? The response from the drill sergeant at the time was, because I told you so. And then he promptly promoted that private to the front of the line, and let him go into the gas chamber first. Now, I eventually worked my way into the gas chamber. I can tell you it's not a fun experience. When you take that mask off, I could barely remember my name. I didn't know my rank, although I didn't really have much. No way I knew my social security number. I just kind of babbled something and they threw me out the back door. But what I remember from that, beyond the fact that my mask worked and all those type of things, I remember that that soldier wanted to know why. And that was a chance for the, the leader, and I understand why he didn't in that circumstance, but he could have said something like, well, soldier, we want to make sure that an event, if you're having to wear your mask in a, in a real world situation, you need to have confidence that your mask is going to work for you. That's why we're doing this. As opposed to his response was, because I told you so. Now get in there first. And I think that's a great example as you walk into that week thinking about purpose, why you choose to lead, for us to understand why knowing the why behind things really matter. People want to know the meaning behind the work. They want to feel like what they're doing is purposeful, especially, especially leaders these days, although I would suggest leaders at every age, we just weren't as um, maybe forthcoming to share that at times, but certainly leaders these days, the newer leaders, they want to know the why. So I use that as an opening story and I appreciate you asking me about it. Patrick, did you read the audiobook version of your book? I did read the audio, audio book, book, and I was actually, I live in Nashville, as you said, Scott. I was down on Music Row, which is where all the small recording studios are, kind of much of the country music predominantly has been recorded over all the years. And when I came out of the studio during one of the breaks, the person coming out of the studio adjacent to me was Keith Urban. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I introduced myself, said hello to him. Yeah. And then I, I jokingly say, Scott, that nowadays, you know, I walk around and say, Keith Urban was in the studio next to me when I was recording this book. And at the same time, he's walking around saying, Patrick Ledden was in the yes, studio next yes. to me when I was recording this song. He's such a name dropper, that Keith Urban. He um, really is. He really pa is. Patrick, as I mentioned in your opening, you are a professor at Vanderbilt, one of the top 15 institutions in America and the world. You teach a variety of courses around business, marketing, things like that. And so you spend a lot of your time, some large portion, with 
18, 19, 20, 21, young 20 year olds that are getting ready to go into the workforce throughout the world. For the leaders that are of my generation, that perhaps are in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, listening and watching today, what is it you want them to know about how best to lead this generation? You've been a professor for nearly a decade. What do you want us to know about how best to lead this new generation coming into the workforce? What are their fears, their passions, their desires? What do we, what do we think about them that's not right, that's, that's mistaken? Well, I think there's a lot out there about them that I read, Scott, that that is accurate when they talk about what students are looking for or new leaders or new people entering into the workforce. They do want to have that purpose part we talked about earlier. They are interested because they've been told for so long um, in understanding an organization's culture. They don't necessarily know what it means or how you go about understanding it, but they're looking for that. And to a certain degree, I think that when you're out interviewing people and you're trying to interviewing students, I should say, as they come out of school, or we're trying to connect with younger leaders, um, you might think, well, we'll do some window dressing things that makes them understand that we're a great place to work. You know, we'll change our oil in the parking, their oil in the parking lot, or we'll give them an extra holiday. But I'm gonna suggest they're probably looking for things a little deeper than that. They wanna know that you care about what they care about. They wanna see that you're putting energy behind things um, they put energy behind. So there's that one side of the equation about what kind of what they're looking for. The other side I think that's really critical, um, and I've learned over time working with students is that they'll step up when you challenge them. So if I come into class and I set expectations here, I'm gonna get that. If I raise the expectations even sizably, guess what I get? I get that as well. So they, they are up for the challenge, they're excited about their future, just like you would have been excited about your future or were excited about your future. They have some apprehensions. Many of the students in school right now, if you think about it, they were born you know, since, uh, they don't know anything before 9-11. They were born since the Great Recession. They've gone through the COVID situation. I mean, there's been a lot going on in their world over the course of their 20 years or so that has really kind of framed how they see the world. So we need to understand that as well. And then the last thing I would say is that despite the fact that I just shared three things with you that I say, hey, these things are kind of generalisms about the, um, about the students in school right now and those entering the workforce, those are generalisms. So every person is unique, just like you're unique and all your listeners are unique. And we need to make sure we understand the unique needs of each individual. Patrick, I know you do something fun in your classes periodically because I follow you on LinkedIn. You often have uh, fairly sizable luminaries come to speak to your class. You aren't just the expert. You go out of your way to invite people in, virtual or live in person. What's, who's one of the luminaries you've had come speak to your students that you've learned the most from and what did you learn? So I'm very fortunate at Vanderbilt. They have a program or a class, I should say, called Managing in Adversity. And that kind of came on from on high at the university and they decided to pick a professor to lead that course and I was selected to do it, which has been a real honor. And we do have a lot of amazing people um, who step in and tell the students about their careers, the adversities they faced, et cetera. One that sticks out in my mind was just a couple of weeks ago, author James Patterson spoke to my class. and. And James Patterson is a very well-known author. If you're not familiar with his, his name, just go out and look in the bookstore. Uh, about one out of, I believe it's every 17 hardcover books that are sold in the US have his name on the front cover of it. He has sold, get this, Scott, 750 plus million copies of his books have been sold. And he talked to the students about disruption. He's got a forthcoming autobiography that comes out in June of this year. But he talked about disruption, everything from, he started out the presentation with the students saying, I'm going to disrupt the way you normally do this class because we have a kind of a normal case study flow for the class. He said, I'm going to blow that up and disrupt that. And then he talked about how he disrupted his career, how he made some choices in an industry, tried to disrupt the industry in an industry where 
publishers, like you know, Scott, will often say one book a year is what you put out. He's putting out 46 in, a, in an industry where, where they say you should write solo predominantly. He's got all sorts of co-authors. And in fact, he came to Nashville uh, right at the same time he was talking to my class. He came to Nashville to meet up with Dolly Parton because he and Dolly Parton have a book together coming out. But basically, Dolly Parton also wrote an, an album that goes along with the book. So again, trying to disrupt the industry. So we've been really fortunate to have some great speakers come talk to my students. Patrick, when you look back on your own leadership journey, three decades like mine, deep, broad variety of industries and organizations, what leadership tactics, leadership principles, leadership action steps are consistent from three decades ago to 2022? What are two or three or four things that, are, that worked when you were being led that still work now? And I'm going to ask you the opposite. Yeah, I think that one thing that, that continues to work today is it, it, it oftentimes starts between your ears, how you, how you see things, um, how you process the world around you. I know, you. I know at Franklin Covey, they talk a lot about the see-do-get model, and I think they're right. How you see the world often drives your behaviors, and those behaviors drive your results. So when I think about certain mindsets that are, that are definitely uh, critical now and were critical 20 or 30 years ago are things like putting things in perspective. You know, when you're young and you're new to something, you may not understand what the life cycle or cycle of the business is. You may not understand how things ebb and flow over time. But after you've had a few reps, you start to pick up on that. So the ability to put things in context, even early on, is helpful. Sometimes that means you have to recognize that this thing is really, really important. And other times you need to realize that, oh, this thing is kind of a B or C level task. I think that's a critical thing. So I'd say mindset and then a mindset's like being able to put things in perspective. I think also the ability to get clear on why you choose to lead. Um, Patrick Lencioni was on my podcast some time ago, and he wrote a book called Motivation. And he talks about that, like, why do you choose to lead? Do you want the parking spot in the parking lot with your name on it? Do you want a little bit of bump in salary? Or are you doing it for some other reason? And as you might imagine, he's interested more in the other reason, as am I, as I know you are as well, Scott. So I think it's really critical to kind of understand why you're playing the game, why you're in it, what you're trying to do, who you're, who you're in it for, whose agenda you're on, and also to make sure that you're constantly checking your mindset so you kind of keep things in perspective. You name dropper, James Patterson, Keith Urban, Patrick Lindsay. <laughs> I'm just razzing you. Uh, what's the opposite? Think about the, other than because I said so, which we yeah. also probably hear too often in life. My boys <laughs> do, at least my sons. What are some of the leadership principles that are maybe tactics, aren't principles, that you think are outdated to kind of shock us into stop doing and saying this and instead do and say that, and you're welcome to draw upon any of the weeks from your book. What's outdated and should at all costs not be repeated with the new workforce? And I'm not necessarily going to be able to hit on these and say, these were true 20 years ago, don't do them now necessary things, but I think we need to learn from the past and as we move forward. So there's certain things that, we're getting back to the expectation of the younger workforce coming out, things like transparency uh, are, are really key. The ability to um, share what you can share, but then explain things you can't share and why you can't share them. I think it's kind of foolish to say, oh, be transparent with your people, assuming that means you're going to come out and tell them everything you heard in the you know, level up meeting in your organization. But what you can do is come back and, and share with them what you can share. And if you can't share something, you say, I can't share this right now, but I will when I can. So I think how we deal with transparency has certainly changed. In the past, it was a little bit more of I told you to do so type of thing. I think there's also a degree of of, as we move forward in organizations and as people advance in their careers, some of the expectations that we thought were true, or we might look at the earlier generation and say, how could they want that? Like, how could they, how could they jump jobs right now? Or 
you know, how, how could they possibly want this promotion or this um, salary increase or whatever it may be right now? Part of it is folks, they see and hear what their friends are doing everywhere in the world. You know, Scott, if you and I knew somebody who got promoted or took a job in another state 20 or 30 years ago, you might get the occasional card from that person, but you wouldn't be able to see what's going on in their life every day. If you did, it probably would change expectations about what you think would be reasonable for you to have in your life. So I don't think that they want things, you know, more than we wanted them. Just the expectation is higher because they're seeing other people get those. So I think we need to be clear on that. Which, what goes hand in hand with that is, though, is setting clear expectations. It's helping people understand just because your friend got promoted doesn't mean you're ready for promotion right now. Just because they got this raise doesn't mean our business is in the same situation. So I think transparency, being real with people, understanding where their expectations are coming from, and then having conversations about those are really critical things. Patrick, I recognize that today's conversations has been a bit episodic with you, but again, you are a generalist, in my opinion. You have broad range. You have an insatiable curiosity. You have mastered many different avenues of media and communication, specifically LinkedIn. 2022, it seems like a lot of social media gets a fairly uh, bad rap, but LinkedIn seems to stand kind of outside of that fray. You are a influencer on LinkedIn. I mentioned you have more than 100,000 people that follow you on a daily, weekly basis. Will you maybe deconstruct a little bit of how you use LinkedIn, how you use it to communicate with your book buyers and your keynote speech clients and students and alumni and colleagues and perhaps future clients. Talk a bit about how you've built that and how others perhaps could do the same. Well, I think first off, you have to realize that you know, LinkedIn's a tool. So there's lots of different social media tools that you can use. The question is, what are you trying to achieve? And for me, and I know you as well, Scott, LinkedIn is a, a valuable tool to us because it does allow us to talk to oftentimes professionals or other people in the world who might be making decisions about hiring us for keynotes or possibly buying our books or just looking for some um, direction yeah. and help and yeah. advice in their careers. So that's why I kind of hold up residence in LinkedIn. And for me, getting back to where you said that I kind of have an insatiable appetite for information, I, I kind of do. And about four or five years ago, one day I remember I was home alone. Uh, my wife and our two kids had gone to the store and I pulled out my laptop and I wrote an article and said, I'm just going to put this up on LinkedIn. And it did pretty well. There were like, I don't know, 1,700 people looked at it. To me, that seemed like a big number. And um, so I was like, okay, I'm going to put another one up and then another one and then another one. And what I found happened for me at least is I only have so much RAM in my head. I can only hold so many ideas. And there was a point in time where I thought, I'm just going to hold on to all my ideas. And someday, you know, somebody's going to knock on my door and say, can you sell me all those brilliant ideas? And that doesn't really happen. So what I found is the more I shared ideas, the more ideas I was able to be able to put back in my mind because I freed up that RAM for new ideas. So for the last four plus years, every week, I write a new article and put it up on LinkedIn. In fact, it comes out initially in our newsletter. So if you want to sign up for our newsletter, that's great. But it comes out in our newsletter as well as a, a video that I make every week and a podcast episode and a little tool for people to use. So I make those four things every week. And as you know, discipline's really critical. So if I keep doing that week after week after week, you start to build a following. I will tell you one thing about that following. So I enjoy hiking. My son and I like to go hiking. And I was uh, on a 14,000 foot mountain in Colorado. If you're familiar with that with Colorado, they have a bunch of 14ers. And we were coming down off the top of one of those 14ers about two or three years ago. And I passed a young lady who was going up and she said, are you Patrick Ledden? And I'm like, yeah. And she goes, 
I read your LinkedIn articles. I really enjoy them. I said, is that what got you this far today? She's like, absolutely. But you know, it's one of those things where you don't know the value of it necessarily. I did appreciate being recognized on the mountain. That kind of gave me a little more energy as I was going through the mountain that day. But the point wasn't that. The point was like, you're putting something out there. You, you hope it's going to be valuable, but you're contributing to an ongoing discussion to help leaders become more effective. And as you know, Scott, the average leader gets their first job at 30 years old, but they don't get their first training until they're 42. That's a big gap. Patrick, let's end with uh, this inspirational thought. I saw on your LinkedIn in the last week or so a picture of a group of people that were studying your book. They were actually going through the five-week leadership challenge. I don't know if they were, it was from uh, somewhere in Africa or the Caribbean. I don't remember. Haiti. In Haiti. Yeah. Will, you, will you talk? That's got to feel great. That a, a group of Haitian, were they students? Were they professionals? I forgot. They're actually professional. There's a nonprofit that works with, um, with Haitian business owners trying to um, help them how to more effectively run their business. And that nonprofit came across the book and they asked me if I'd be willing to uh, you know, cut them a deal on the book. So, of course, absolutely. And then I uh, sent them a copy of the book. They're going through it one, instead of one lesson a day, they're doing one lesson a week. So it's going to take them the better part of a year to get through the book. And I actually did an interview or conversation, I guess I should say, uh, an engineer, she, a lady from Haiti, she called me up. She's a professional engineer. And we had about a two-hour Zoom conversation that they recorded where she walked me through the book and I talked about the different stories in the book. And she talked about how those stories kind of relate to what they experience in their culture. So as you might imagine, some stories are, are spot on. You know, human experience is human experience. And there's other ones that you, there's, there's some things you have to kind of adjust or ever flow or change to make it really connect in their world. And she was helping me do that. So they also have broken that video up into several clips and they're using it as well. So yeah, to your point, I received a text the other day with that picture and that just, that makes you feel 10 feet tall in that yeah. moment. And again, it's, it's not about me, but to some extent it is, right? When you feel 10 feet tall, that's a good thing. Yeah. So, did, did Keith Urban get a photograph of uh, some? Urban, exactly. No, he didn't get Whatever. Patrick Ledden, how many helicopters and airplanes have you jumped out of in service to our nation? 69. Wow. Ever had one go wrong? Obviously not, but. Yeah, I had a couple. Uh, <laughs> you talk about it in the book. Share the story and then we'll wrap up. I do have a story in the book, yeah, where I talk about jumping out of a plane um, and I ended up going into the trees. But I'll actually tell you a different story. It's not in the book. This is a bonus one for your, for your podcast listeners and folks watching the show. So many years ago, uh, when I was jumping out of a plane at night, they do this thing, it's, it's a brilliant tactic. They basically say, we're gonna open up both doors in the back of the airplane. There's 60 people on each side of the airplane, and in one minute's time, everybody on the airplane is gonna dump out of the plane. Okay, so think about that. 60 people on this door, 60 people on that door. And the way they keep us from running into each other, Scott, is the first two people start one second apart. Now think about that one. So it's supposed to somehow magically stay in order. Of course it doesn't. And one day I jumped out of an airplane in the middle of the night and you're supposed to count to four, like 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000. Then you look up to see if you have a parachute because those come in way in handy. And um, <laughs> that day I went 1,000, 2,000, boom. And somebody kicked me in the back of my head, right in my neck, actually had a nice bruise on the back of my neck. And our parachutes were entangled all the way down to the ground. Fortunately for us, uh, one of our parachutes, actually both, actually stayed um, open the entire time. So we were safe in that regard. But we were descending pretty quickly. And I remember what happened in that moment might be helpful to your listeners to think about is, you know, there's times when you hit situations like that where you don't have a lot of time to make a decision, oftentimes like challenging times or unexpected crises. You don't have a lot of time to make a decision. Some of those times you have to rely on the preparation you've done before 
and what you've learned about yourself and about others in the situation. And that's exactly what happened. In fact, I, I was a jump master at that time, which meant I threw other people out of airplanes. So I've been trained pretty well on how to deal with that situation. And I remember the whole time down, the guy who I ran into was above me. So I was looking up, talking to him. I'm like, we have two fully, full, fully open parachutes. They can carry us safely to the ground, yada, 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 yada. It wasn't until I hit the ground that I was like, what just happened? Type of thing. But leaning into stuff that you already know, trusting yourself, that can be very helpful in times of crisis, times of adversity, or even in the day-to-day -day throes of work that can be pretty challenging too. Patrick Ledden, Renaissance man, author of the new Wall Street Journal bestseller, The Five-Week Leadership Challenge, 35 Action Steps to Become the Leader You Were Meant to Be. Where can our listeners and guests learn more about you? Well, they can learn more about me at leddengroup.com. It's L-E-D-D-I-N-G-R-O-U-P.com. You can go online. You can sign up for a newsletter. You can get an online version of the course. You can order the book on Amazon. You can talk to us about keynoting. As you mentioned, Scott, I do share a lot of stages with, with yourself and other people talking to leaders and helping develop them. If you have new or aspiring leaders or you want to figure out how to do it more effectively, just reach out and give me a call. Patrick Ladden, thank you for your service to our nation. Thank you for the book. You've been a longtime multi-decade consultant and colleague of Franklin Covey. We wish you the best success. What's next for you? Well, my next book coming out is in Master Mentors, Volume 3. I'm not sure what the color of the book will be, but I'm sure I'll be featured. I think it's purple. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> is Keith Urban in the book? No, but apparently Dr. Ledden is. Uh, any, any books, <laughs> other than, of course, your appearance in Master Mentors, Volume 7, what is, what's next for you? I'm working on a book right now around mindset that talks about the importance of mindset, but I think it goes further than what we typically talk about is like mindset matters, which often leaves people going, okay, I guess I'll go out and try to get some of that. I'm going to talk to them about mindsets that matter, why they matter, and how you can develop them. You're a class act. Uh, I'm honored to call you my friend. Thank you, man. Thanks, Scott. Take care. We'll see you back next week for another conversation on leadership. Mm -hmm.